Welcome to our public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Dina de Ayala talks about protecting architectural world heritage from seismic hazards. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I start with this picture. Some of you will recognize Lincoln Cathedral. And it's there for the simple fact that it's probably the only piece of uh, architectural heritage in the UK that was ever very severely damaged by an earthquake in 1150. And the upper part, which as you can see is in a different style from the lower part, was completely rebuilt as a result of it. Um, as uh, the lady said in the introduction, uh, earthquakes and people seem to go very well along together, as you can see from these two maps that shows the highest area of seismicity here in red, and here we have the highest density of cultural heritage. Perhaps um, just to focus our mind, if we... no. Sorry. How do I start the... No. We'll retort to the traditional system. <laughs> just to focus our mind, I just want to show you a, a video produced by uh, a scientist in uh, Japan. This one is a record based on the USGS uh, records of earthquakes uh, that have occurred in the past 2011. As you can see here, these are all the records with a magnitude greater than six. And you can see the magnitude and the depth of the earthquake according to the red uh, circles. The yellow circles marks the epicenter. As you can see, the uh, line is quite uh, steady and horizontal, so clearly there is a daily or monthly uh, occurrence of earthquake worldwide, which is, seems almost organic to our planet. However, um, every now and then there are major events, such as the New Zealand one over there, which caused great disruption to, the human, to human settlement, but as you can see, has not actually produced any difference in this graph. But if we get now to the Japanese earthquake of the beginning of March of last year, please look at the, how this line gets much more steep. And this basically continues for almost a month with very high magnitudes and then has uh, side effects in other parts of the crustal earth and until, let's say, the activity sort of subsides again and goes back uh, to normal. If I now manage to stop this, as we will last quite a few minutes, but as you can see, the number here, just in four months, of, of five months, we are at about 5,000 uh, events uh, of uh, magnitude greater than six all over the planet. And 
you're all probably familiar, no? You're all probably uh, familiar with these images. This is a church in Haiti, uh, destroyed by the earthquake in 2010. This is a multi-rise buildings in Chile, also destroyed during an earthquake in 2010. This was the uh, greatest earthquake recorded up to that point, March 2010, until the Japanese event. This is a survivor of, or a shot just after the uh, tsunami in 2011 in the Honshu province, and this building was the tsunami alert uh, center. And as you can see, it was designed to survive the wave, and it has to a certain extent, but, of, <laughs> well, you know, the, unfortunately, it's not a laughable matter. I think several people died in this. But, and this is finally an, uh, the results of the, sh- of the shock uh, in New Zealand. Um, so, what uh, what is the situation currently? And then I will talk a bit about the past and uh, the uh, future, hopefully. So basically, seismic risk is, a, let's call it a multifaceted problem, which has very high impact on, uh, the hum- on human settlement. It's multifaceted because it depends on, oops, depends on the... Uh, seismic activity of the herd, but also depends on where we settle and how vulnerable our settlements are. And the risk then has consequences at social level, economical level, and uh, of course uh, physical planning can perhaps do something. At the moment, we have different way of approaching the problem of loss and also mitigating the loss. Typically, we looked at just records of damage or we try to define analytical models. Usually, the analytical models are uh, better set, uh, suited for, uh, let's say, uh, the developed world where we have a high economic impact and where structures are engineered. In the developing world, we have a much higher human impact, i.e. more casualty and deaths. These structures tend to be more vulnerable, and we are not so good at um, modeling them. So one of the things that we intend to do is to actually develop analytical model for less for more vulnerable structures, i.e. what we call non-engineered structures. And the architectural heritage falls squarely into this category. But of course, we are also concerned with uh, residential vulnerable buildings. Um, There is currently a new, uh, let's say, uh, organization called GEM, or initiative called GEM, the Global Earthquake Model, and we uh, work particularly within this organization in the, um, uh, vulnerab- in the analysis 
vehicle structural vulnerability. We have collected a large database of available information for all, oops, for all types of buildings, sorry, for all types of building, either reinforced concrete, which are usually engineered, or steel, which are usually engineered, but also for types of building that are not engineers, and as you can see, in area where the seismicity is particularly high, remember the red areas. Uh, this is gone into an electronic, all this information is gone into an electronic database and we can then analyze it and use it in order to carry out assessment at urban level or at uh, uh, regional level. We can then use this information also to uh, carry out very detailed uh, analytical uh, models what, and procedure, what we call non-linear pushover analysis, i.e. Uh, let's assume that we have a building and we want to push it to simulate the earthquake to identify the different way in which the structure here, uh, modeled can then fail the red area uh, depending on different hypotheses. Once we have identified how it fails, we can then uh, clearly help thinking and start thinking about how we retrofit it or how we can improve its behavior. Let's now, however, look at the past, i.e. at our heritage. So, this is, for instance, the Temple of Artemis in Gerash, Jordan, built by the Roman. is a building of about the uh, first uh, century after Christ, built during the Adrian, uh, Adrian uh, Imperorship. And you can clearly see the sign of the past earthquakes in the fact that the rocks are not aligned in these columns. And this has been standing like this after having lost the uh, upper part of the temple uh, for the past uh, 20th century. Coming closer to today's, this is the dome of the Hagia Irini in Istanbul, a church very close to uh, Hagia Sophia. And again, you can clearly see the sign of cracks, of damage, but this church has never been restored. It's still standing and it's still used, uh, although as a monument now, as a concert hall. These are instead two buildings in uh, India, Gujarati, um, both the Rani Vas and the Pragmal. Uh, and they were both damaged to very different extents by an earthquake in 2001. And as you can see, this is Bougie, the location of these two buildings. And this was the epicenter and the intensity of the earthquake in this area was very high. But as you can see, the buildings were damaged to very different extents. And this has to do with the type of construction, the type of materials, and uh, the way that it they were also maintained over the uh, years. We can 
how can we use this information that we can gleam after an earthquake? We can systematically record it using photographic records, as we have done for this one, for, for one of these two buildings, for instance, and then we can interpret it in order to try to start and understand how the building behaves from a structural point of view, what, why certain parts collapse or don't collapse, and hence how we can uh, retrofit it. We can do this not just for one building, but we can do it for all type of heritage once we have codified and classified the heritage in different classes, depending very much on their behavior. And here you can recognize, for instance, the temples down here or the churches up here, and they are clearly although they look very different or uh, like towers and minarets, they actually, from a structural point of, view, point of view, they tend to behave in a similar manner that allow us to then make generalization and hence to engineer our understanding and engineer the uh, strengthening. What methodology do we use? Uh, blank canvas to start with, so we, we want to go for uh, a logic approach to classify and interpret the uh, damage. We, uh, will we aim to use an expert tool that will allow identifying the damage. In order to do this, we can use a, what we call a hierarchical approach, which links all elements of uh, what we call an architectonic asset or a piece of heritage. Uh, we start from the asset itself. This can be divided in what we call macro element, i.e. walls, vaults, roof, floors, and so on, staircases. For each macro element, we can identify a number of structural elements. For instance, for a wall, we can identify piers, columns, spandrels, lintels, beam, and arches. Uh, and then for each structural element, we can also identify its behavior. And if there are artistic elements or architectonic future attached to the structural element, we can also uh, relate it to that. Once we have identified the element, we, can, we then need a systematic data acquisition system. In particular, we want to use as much as possible photographic observation and in situ observation because this is relatively cheap. But we need to have a, a way of also recording and storing and logging this information so that we can uh, recall it and use it to, for our analysis. Uh, for instance, given such uh, uh, structures, we want a way for uh, recording the crack pattern in a way that is then generic to all possible structures of this type that we can use. Um, we, want, we then want to uh, be able to interpret that crack pattern, and hence we want to store, to store it so that uh, damage, position, type, and level can be systematically collected at the level of the single structural element in such a way. <coughs> at this point, you don't recognize anymore the uh, 
uh, facade that I showed earlier on, but you can recognize the uh, pattern and you can recognize the way in which we uh, classify it and the uh, definition of different levels. Once that is done, we need to interpret it. And in order to interpret it, what better than use expert knowledge and uh, uh, artificial intelligence, so-called. Uh, so we then develop a series of logic trees, i.e. a way of reasoning our way through the interpretation of the uh, damage that will lead us always to, uh, hopefully, to the same results if it's properly uh, developed. Uh, how do we use all of this? Um, we have created a website that you can access on uh, the, in collaboration with computer science, that you can access on this uh, particular uh, link. Uh, the website allows to create records for each building observed or for each facade observed. You can, uh, can design and uh, simplify sketches that then record damage type and damage level for the structural elements down here. So create the sketch, codify, record the damage observed, upload pictures, which uh, connects to the uh, damage, and then uh, record prob prob what we call pr uh, collapse mechanism, i.e. how the, according to the interpretation of the person that is loading the data, how that particular facade will fail. How do we interpret it? There are two ways of doing it. We can use directly the practitioner expertise and just simply say, well, I see such and such a crack pattern, I know that it's going to be this particular mechanism. Or we can use, we can try to harness this intuitive approach of the practitioner, uh, define it into a series of scenarios, feed the scenarios into a computer system and then use it through giving this same basic information using to provide us with this answer. And how it goes is like this. This is, for instance, for the same very simple mechanism. So the logic tree describes the procedure in detail uh, to detect the possible collapse mechanism. The collapse mechanism is described by a specific crack pattern. The crack pattern is described by damage position, type, and level. And the logic tree checks that for each uh, level of the structure, that particular pattern is uh, replicated. For instance, for this particular mechanism, in order to, for it to occur, we need to have vertical cracks at the edge of the facade. So we run the uh, artificial intelligence. In order for that to uh, occur, we need to have cracks in these particular elements that we have numbered, and they have to be vertical cracks. So yes for the upper level, yes for the second level, yes for the total level, the mechanism is verified. And this is a very simple case, but we can develop more and more complex case, which in some occasion we wouldn't be able to 
let's say, interpret otherwise. Um, of course, if the system is properly uh, trained and tested, then it can work for cases for which we have not uh, yet, which we have not yet submitted to it, and this is all the whole point of an artificial intelligence. On the other hand, we can try still to uh, develop more traditional engineering approach, i.e. to have a model that can compute something and that can churn us out numbers because as engineers we are very happy with that. And we can quickly then verify whether uh, something works or not depending on the number that are churned out and whether uh, we can quantify better the strengthening. So using very much the same approach for the data collection, we can then use the same data that we have seen in the previous case to uh, actually uh, compute in a much more precise way what is the level of acceleration that will determine that particular collapse mechanism in that particular uh, uh, facade. And having done so, we can then uh, use, uh, uh, in a synthetic way, that results in order to ask what we call, again, pushover analysis, um, to identify some uh, particular points where we can quantify damage. We can then correlate this to the uh, uh, level of acceleration at that particular side as expressed by what we call uh, elastic spectrum, which is a synthetic way of representing the event or an earthquake event at a particular uh, site. Having done that, we can come up with uh, fragility curves that gave us a distribution of the damage over a large number of buildings. And in order to know whether we are doing something right or not, we have, for instance, applied this approach to the seismic damage following the earthquake in L'Aquila in 2009 in Italy. And we have then compared the observed damage in terms of uh, the uh, log idea approach that you have seen before with the numerical damage computed with this second procedure. And I have to say the results were quite uh, comforting. We managed to have an overlap of about 75% of cases in terms of uh, damage pattern and collapse mechanism. And from that, we could then derive the level of vulnerability of the level of capacity of each of these buildings. Once the level of vulnerability is known, then we can start thinking in engineering terms about how we go at retrofitting it or at strengthening these buildings in order to improve their behavior. So, and that's the future. Uh, what, how do we deliver this building to posterity? Um, before deciding on what to do, we need to decide on how we do it. And uh, we need to decide a framework that uh, allow us to uh, uh, make sure that whatever we intervene on the heritage, we are not 
causing more damage. And the best way of doing this is to look carefully at the present state, identify all the structural and architectural elements, understand the failure mechanism, as we have just seen, trying to also look at the original state of the building and, under and understand how actually from the original state the building finds itself in its present state, which is usually very different, either because it's already experienced past seismic damage or because it's been altered for different uses by uh, previous generation of human being. Once this is clear, we can then look at how we repair, strengthen, and upgrade. And if we want our intervention to be successful, it has to be structurally feasible. Uh, it, it doesn't have to arm the building, it has, but also, very importantly, it has to be economically viable, and it has to be friendly to the building itself. In other words, it has to be sustainable and that ensures, again, delivery to posterity. In doing so, um, we also need to understand at which level we are operating. As you, if you remember, one of my first slides was about how much we know about the vulnerability of certain buildings rather than others, and how uh, easily we can work with them, or we can assess them. So. We can express hazard measures in very different ways. Earlier on, you have seen me talking about uh, linear and nonlinear spectres, but we can record each event with what we call accelerograms. Depending on how sophisticated is our, uh, let's say, information on the event, we can also have uh, increasing sophistication of the way that we uh, mo model the structure so that we have a match between our model and uh, the information that we have on the event. But of course, for an increased sophistication of the uh, modeling, we need also to have quite a large number of information. And all of this feeds again into the uh, strengthening approach so that we can basically act or in a uh, risk approach framework. We can define how much we require from that structure. Uh, we can talk about demand. We can then understand what is the capacity of the structure, i.e., uh, instead of looking at how vulnerable it is, we can look at how resilient it can be. And this, however, will, oops, will depend on the uh, performance that we expect from that structure or from that piece of architectural heritage, i.e. we expect it not to damage at all in a given magnitude event. We expect it to damage a bit, but basically very little, so that, for instance, architectonic features within the building will not be seriously damaged, or we expect it to damage to a level that needs to be demolished after the event because it's not usable anymore, but we are guaranteeing the, say, the life of the people that are uh, using it. And of course, this also depends on how long we expect that building to be in use in the future. So 
Um, of course, if it's a piece of uh, architectural heritage, you, we will not assume that it will last only for the next 50 years, like uh, a modern structure, but we, as ordinary structure, but we assume that we have to deliver to posterity for at least the next 200 years. And then we need to look at how often events of magnitude that can be damaging for that building will occur within that uh, time span. On the other end, we also need to understand that when we look at a particular architectonic asset or a heritage building, it's true that we want it to... Uh, we want to protect it from physical damage from an earthquake. But at the same time, we know that any time we intervene on, an on a piece of architectural heritage, we actually lose some of its authenticity, some of its original content or fabric or um, character. So really, at any given time, whether we intervene before our damaging event to protect the building, or whether we intervene after an event to repair it, we will always have what we call a loss of authenticity. And a balance needs to be found and a compromise needs to be struck between what we are prepared to lose in terms of authenticity in order to deliver the structure to the future. In doing so, uh, we can perhaps use very uh, small or uh, relatively unobtrusive devices that can ensure us, for instance, uh, to prevent the out-of-plane mechanism, i.e. that A mechanism that we have seen at the beginning of the lecture, from uh, forming and ends uh, for the facade of uh, um, church to be lost. And we can do so by using what, oops, what we call ties or anchors. Ties are typically <coughs> uh, traditional anchors and ties have been used for the past 200, 300 years. You will see them around in buildings in Bath, in Bristol, usually in the UK used to retain the end uh, walls of a terrace, um, but also in general to prevent, as I said, walls from moving out. They can be very effective also in uh, earthquake uh, areas. Uh, for the ones of you that might have been in the south of France or in Umbri Umbria or Tuscany, you will see many houses with traditionally uh, uh, traditional ties that have the uh, effect exactly of preventing overturning. Um, these ties, they are quite effective, but they don't prevent damage. And if we want to deliver the, an architectural, a piece of architectural energy of some importance to posterity, we also need to think of how we limit damage. So in order to do that, we have uh, tried to develop what we call dissipative anchors, which are based either on the fact that steel will yield over a certain 
level of uh, stress applied, or that we can use friction between two plates that move relative to each other in order to dissipate energy. And if we manage to dissipate energy at the, within these devices, then this means that that same energy will not fit in, feed into the building and hence will not damage the building. Um, in order to see if this system works, we have recently inserted one in a church that was damaged in uh, L'Aquila after the 2009 earthquake. And we are not only inserted one of these dissipative devices, but we have also instrumented it so that we can get feedback on how the tie works, on how the two portions of the church move relative to each other, and hence we, this, if we can use this information in a better way to uh, design the retrofitting uh, technique. In order to validate these devices, we are also um, conducting shaking table tests on models mock-up, such as this one, and I will try to show you what happens here is when we, yes, it's coming up. So this is uh, uh, what we call a shaking table test. So we are basically uh, giving this house, is it moving? <laughs> yes, it is. Well, it will start soon. Yes, there it is. Um, Basically, we have suministered to the table an uh, um, uh, recording of L'Aquila, and we want to see whether the structure will be uh, damaged with, uh, for that particular earthquake. As you can see, this has been quite successful, uh, although it was a uh, scaled record, so a smaller proportion. And then we can generalize and replicate this with nonlinear finite element analysis in which we can actually look at how uh, will the, that same building will behave under different type of uh, uh, actions, so for different records, for instance. Um, and here you can see a relatively similar behavior to uh, the previous one. How we can use this information, because this, of course, is all conducted in the lab and it might well stay there, but it's not going to be very useful. So um, we have teamed up with uh, the Getty Conservation Institute, which is uh, the uh, part of the Paul Getty Foundation in uh, California, and with the Universita, Universidad Pontificia Catolica uh, del Peru, uh, to study in a very detailed manner four different prototypes of buildings typical of their heritage, which were all in different ways affected by an earthquake occurring in Peru in 2007, in which 600 people died, of which many in the collapse of churches. And this is the Cathedral of Ica that I will show you now. Um, 
and you can see the damage to the facade, similar to what we were talking about earlier, but also, very importantly, the failure of the vaults over the nave. <coughs> this is a building made of timber and uh, mud, and in, uh, in a very sophisticated system which was uh, developed uh, by the Spanish in the 18th century called Quincha, on which many, many uh, South American uh, heritage is actually made of. Um, these are details of the damage after the first earthquakes, and then more recently there has been, and please look at the uh, dome. Unfortunately, the building has remained more or less in this state for the past now four years. And I'm just saying four years because uh, I will say something later. But And this is due to the fact that there is very little knowledge on how to repair it. And there are, of course, very limited funds. So uh, proper strategy needs to be identified to uh, uh, actually produce uh, good and economical solution. And this is the building after the another minor earthquake, let's say, although of high magnitude, uh, that occurred just last October. So the building before was in this condition with the domes still fully there, and after this second uh, event, the dome has been, the dome collapsed completely and hence there is further loss. And of course it becomes more and more of a threat also for the population of Ica. In order to understand how this work, how this building work, we have actually again built a um, model. In this case, it's, uh, as I said, it's a timber structure, so we have just concentrated on the timber frames and the timber element that constitute the model. And rather than uh, running the analysis with, the, with an accelerogram, as we have done in the previous case, in the lab, given the relatively modest knowledge that we have about this building work, we have simply used a response spectrum, which is an elastic way of assessing or a simplified way of assessing the structure. We first look at what are called frequency and modes of shaking or deforming, and then we can put all of them together in a superposition analysis to get the finally the final oops deformed shape. Um, another building that we have studied in Peru is instead a building that is made entirely of adobe, and there is uh, very little uh, information about from an engineering point of view of about this material behaves structurally and now, uh, we, and now hence we can retrofit it. Uh, these buildings that, uh, as you can see, that seems uh, clearly, even to the uh, untrained eye, very vulnerable, however, has been there for the past uh, 400 plus years. So there is clearly something to be 
learn from how this behaves. And we, it's very important that we understand how it has been able to uh, survive several uh, shocks during its life. So again, we look at in detail at the construction behavior, and we uh, study its um, way of deforming and uh, vibrating. <coughs> in this case, you can see that that particular facade behaves almost independently of the others, and this has to do with the way in which the single elements are connected and the way in which the various walls are connected and the way in which uh, they are um, put together. But one thing that is worth noticing is that this wall with the buttresses does not, does, uh, not deform at all compared with the other one. So clearly the original buttresses that have been with which this building was built had a very important role. And the, um, <coughs> this can also be seen in this distribution of effects here, where in red you can see the uh, particular um, areas of failure and the large deformation of this uh, unrestrained uh, wall with compa compared with, the, with its counterpart on this other side. And in fact, if we look at the actual building, uh, we can see that the buttresses there were removed or were uh, demolished um, at about uh, in its previous life. It's part of the uh, future, and you will have heard a lot talking about it, is the use of seismic isolation and seismic isolation devices. And very often these are um, introduced as a uh, fit-for-all uh, solution. Uh, indeed, there are various uh, type of uh, rubber of uh, seismic isolation devices. These are usually put at the foundation of the building so that it, the building will be completely isolated from the effect of the incoming earthquake. And uh, some are based on the fact that rubbers uh, can deform a lot. Some other are based on uh, friction or uh, on hysteretic, i.e. Uh, the possibility of yielding uh, of steel. The underlying concept is very similar to the, the, to the uh, um, dissipative device that we are developing, i.e. the idea that if we dissipate energy at a particular location, then the rest of the building will not suffer damage. And just to give you an idea of an application of this, um, oops, we have here the San Francisco City Hall in California. The devices are in the foundation, so below this level, and the, in particular, this is, a, this is a retrofitting that was carried out some uh, 20 years ago, and these uh, this is the foundation level. 
they introduced in order to isolate that building 530 lead rubber bearings, but not only, they had to introduce, which are these objects here. <coughs> Besides this, they also had to build all these strong reinforced concrete structure in order to really isolate the building. So it's not a very simple intervention. It's not an intervention that leaves the building as it were. And if you uh, assume it, uh, in, for instance, with all the archaeological uh, um, consideration that we have in Europe, one that would be very difficult to implement. And with this thought, I think I conclude my talk um, with an image of Hagia Sophia, which was indeed damaged in 1475, was then rebuilt as a result of the earthquake, of uh, that partial collapse. It's still standing, represents um, one of the most important world heritage buildings for the whole of humanity. Thank you.